Risk appetite is something that is very important for people to define, and financial institutions have deep, deep, I mean, they're in the risk business, obviously. And there's a lot of discussion around what is the risk appetite and hard lines drawn. I'm not sure outside of financial services that people spend enough time reflecting on how much risk can we afford and what are the scenarios that will, will take us past that. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Nora Offreiter, one of our guests for today's discussion on board's role in mitigating existential risks, part of our board perspective series. The pandemic crisis has been a stark reminder for many organizations that they may not be sufficiently prepared for unexpected shocks that could not only destabilize them, but potentially shut them down completely. Today, we're going to discuss the board's role in ensuring that planning and preparation for such unexpected shocks. We have three experts with us today with deep experience in governance and risk management. Nora is a corporate board director of the Bank of Nova Scotia, Kroger, and Cadillac Fairview Property Trust, and she's also the chair of the board of MyTeresa.com. Nora is a former senior partner at McKinsey and currently serves as a senior advisor to the firm. Celia Huber is a senior partner in our Silicon Valley office and leads our board services work in North America with a focus on governance, diversity, inclusion, and the evolving role of the board. And Ophelia Usher is a leader in our global risk and crisis response practice. She specializes in topics related to resiliency, crisis preparedness, response, and recovery. And she wrote an article on this topic that we'll share in a link in the show notes. Celia, let's start with you. Um, The pandemic has certainly raised awareness on existential risks, both for executives and for their boards. How have the boards done so far? We run a annual board survey uh, globally of approximately 1,500 corporate directors. And what we found is corporate directors are not at all pleased with their performance on risk management. In fact, only 7% of the board members believe that over the past year, their board has been most effective, our highest rating at risk management. And in fact, only 40% of board members say that their organizations are currently prepared for the next large crisis. And so that brings up a very particular question of what boards should be doing now to prepare and how should they be thinking about crisis and risk management going forward? Okay. So Ophelia, there's obviously a lot of risks out there, um, including existential risks. Which risks should boards be focusing on? So what we have in there is those high-consequence, low-likelihood events. Those are the ones that cause long-term economic impacts, significant reputational damage, and leadership changes. Those are the ones that are most important for the board to pay attention to and not ignore. So just to give you an example, if we look back at COVID in this last year, and you think about that, How much has COVID impacted different industries? There's a significant impact for the arts, the entertainment, accommodations, food services. That is really the pandemic was one of those high consequence, low likelihood events that had significant ramifications to the organization. On the other end, you have financial services and insurance. The key here is how do you know when you're looking at that? Is that high consequence, low likelihood event one of the ones like the pandemic for accommodations and food service, 
or is it something closer to financial um, in, and insurance? That's an important question because there's just so many. How do you identify those? And then how do you prepare for the ones you've identified? This is a way to think about how do you actually look at those risks and figure out which ones matter. So if you think about scope of impact, you're really looking for those high consequence events that impact the core of your organization, the value proposition, that maybe without that could lead to bankruptcy, could lead to leadership change. But you also want to be looking at the certainty of that impact. How certain are you? And this is where this concept where you probably have heard many times, black swan. This is not about looking for those black swans, that asteroid. What we're actually talking about is looking for those things that if you were to take a step back and think about it, really are the core risks to your organization and your value proposition. So if you provide cybersecurity, a cyber attack is going to be a really core piece of that value proposition. And so what we talk about is identifying those predictable surprises. That is where the board wants to focus their energy and time. Figure out what those the risks that matter are, those predictable surprises. Thanks, Ophelia. So predictable surprises, that's an interesting phrase. So the idea is to try and predict what could happen so you're not completely unprepared if it does happen. So Nora, how do boards you've worked with go about identifying those predictable surprises? There is often a foreshadowing of some of these things, and it's only in hindsight that we see the trend or the risk. I, you know, cyber is an obvious one. Activists are an uh, obvious one. But, um, you know, I was at a hospital board meeting yesterday, and we were talking about the nursing shortage. And nurses have been retiring for a long, long time. But COVID has dramatically accelerated uh, reti early retirement, people just burning out. And the pipeline of nurses is not, uh, is not very rich. You can't operate a hospital without nurses. Uh, and, and there are a number of things that uh, in the staffing shortages today around so many industries, you could say are trends that, uh, that were predictable, frontline workers. The turnover there has always been very, very high. In addition to labor, uh, we're seeing issues with the supply chain. Who would have thought that we couldn't roll cars off the production line because of uh, microchips? And so the, thinking about all of the inputs that you have that are core to being able to produce your product, service your customer, those are the types of risks that we're talking about. And Ophelia, I loved it in your article. You talked about predictable surprises. Uh, and made the case for oil spills or safety issues, chemical disasters. Uh, and it just really opened my eyes to start to think about not the expected value of the risk, which is what I was taught in business school, the size of the risk times the probability, but rather what are the existential risks that would change the business and treating them all like they could happen rather than adjusting by the probability. So to Celia's point, how can a board assess how big an impact a given risk could have? Nora, how do your boards approach this? It's very tempting to look at risks individually. And I think there's benefit to looking at scenarios where you have multiple risks hitting at the same time. And in many ways, that's what COVID represented. We had a financial crisis. We had a social crisis. We had a um, pandemic. And if you add those up, often companies uh, take on significant financial risk, private equity deals, et cetera, with, with high leverage. But you also have to consider the operational risk. 
And I think COVID is an example where uh, in retail, which is an area of, of uh, where I have quite a few uh, years of experience, uh, the retailers with high leverage who all of a sudden couldn't get their revenue because their sh stores were shut, you know, it was, it was too much. And that's where you had a lot of bankruptcies because it was the combination of risks um, rather than the individual risks themselves. Yeah. And I think these risks are apparent in the public sector as well. So I live in California. And the joint situation between COVID and our wildfire season really led to a lack of personnel for us to deploy for things like vaccination clinics because the state was really being stretched across a number of crises at the same time. That's really interesting, Celia. Thank you. And, you know, the, the, there's this, uh, the compounding of various maybe smaller risks together can become an existential risk. Have you also observed this with your clients, Ophelia? Yeah, so I think that is something we have seen as a practice where we're supporting clients that have experienced a crisis. It starts as one thing, but it becomes a much broader thing, as Nora pointed out, financial, reputational, and it does. And that's something to be really cognizant of because that's the kind of thing. When one thing goes wrong, everybody piles on and there becomes additional risks there. I think another thing that... Celia really pointed out is that all of these predictable surprises are low likelihood. Your management is thinking about those higher likelihood, lower consequence, and those are important for them to be managing. But at the board level, it's really helping to sift through those low likelihood and identify those handful of high consequence ones that are really important to pressure test. Pressure test against like as Nora pointed out, the operational model you've chosen, the core values you're doing, your customer value, or are there tweaks to do that where you could reduce the risk to the, some of those high consequence ones that really could cause an existential risk? And Ophelia, how do you recommend that the board tackle this? Do they assign a committee to analyze those potential high consequence risks? Or is this more of a job for the entire board? One of the approaches we have found um, working with clients that is most helpful is what we call a pre-mortem. So that is actually stepping back and allowing your imagination to run. We're not looking for the unknown unknowns. You're still working within um, things that experts have mentioned, what the World Economic Forum is talking about, what other groups of experts are mentioning, and you're playing it out. How would that impact your organization if it was to occur? How would it do it? And then the important thing about that pre-mortem is you think about the first order consequences, the second and the third order. So that gets to that sort of the, what is going to happen, what's the piling on, what are stakeholders going to view there. And so that's one that we've um, found is a really important tool. One thing I might add is in, in one of the boards that I worked with, we actually identified 23 forces that generated risk for them. So we actually started back with the trends. So labor shortages might be one. Um, inflation or recession might be another, government response and regulation uh, was a third, and we tried to make those pretty granular so that we could play out what you were talking about, the compounding of risks. And from those 23, we actually then identified a subset that we felt were existential, so would really change the future of the business. Um, and that's then what the board focused on when they met for their annual strategic offsite to really discuss what should be the, the pre-mortem or the plans for that. Uh, Nora, have you been part of the type of exercise Celia just described? And if you have, has it been useful on your boards as well? 
think that's a very helpful thing to do. You have to have an external lens and be looking at what is coming your way. And really, uh, what I would add is uh, boards need to have discussions. You know, some boards get into a cadence of, you know, management presents, directors think of the three or four challenging questions they can ask, and then check, think they've done their job. And it's the discussion among directors and management around the board table that can surface some of these things. Um, you know, I was at a board meeting uh, yesterday where I raised the point challenging us of whether we were ready uh, and whether we had reflected enough on these on these gray swans. And the, uh, the, the uh, takeaway was we should spend a board dinner uh, just stepping back and talking about um, what these might be uh, and how to reflect on are we prepared for, for, for some of them. Um, we, we often have core assumptions that the status quo is going to remain the status quo. And if you can identify the external trends and you can reflect on what are the core assumptions you're making about your business, like there are going to be nurses in the hospital, and challenge those, all of a sudden um, a, a number of uh, real implications rise. One of the things Ophelia mentions in her article, which I was thinking about when you were saying that there might always be nurses, is this optimist bias in the decision making and in the, in the conversation. And so I, I think it's really important in those conversations with the board that it, the group pushes itself to think through what the worst case scenarios could be rather than, um, you know, get lulled into a little bit of safety from the status quo and, and being optimistic about the future. The Global Risk Institute talks a lot about that in the context of uh, strategy development. Uh, as a board, if you engage in approving a, in, uh, approving a strategy, it's some, sometimes helpful to step back and say, okay, what would cause this strategy to fail? And against that, you can identify some major core risks uh, that are long-term. And I think the point here is also not just in the short term, but what are the long-term trends that will affect the company and challenge the, uh, the long-term wellness and viability of the business? Thank you, Nora and Celia. I, I'm wondering how a new board member can get up to speed quickly on building the skills around this risk identification. In a crisis, every director needs to be an effective thought partner to management. Nora, could you share an example where a board member had to come up the learning curve really quickly around identifying and addressing these risks? You know, I think new board members are sometimes... Uh, the best people at this because they can step back and ask the simple question that if you've been on a board uh, a, a while, one, you may not think of, uh, and two, you may sort of go, oh, well, I should know that. And uh, there is no, no such thing as a dumb question and you've got full license as a board member. Uh, I'll give you an example of someone uh, that asked a simple question early on in COVID at one of my retailing boards which was we were talking about COVID and the spread, and we we're talking about distribution centers, and these were very early days. And they said, well, gosh, you know, what would, what would happen if we had a, a breakout in our, in our distribution centers? We wouldn't be able to, uh, to actually move product. And that led to a discussion, and of course, that was an identified area. And, and this person, you know, was sort of, well, why don't we take everyone's temperature? And, and that, with hindsight, is an obvious thing to do, and many people did that. But in very early days, people hadn't immediately thought of that, or at least certainly I didn't, and the rest of the board hadn't. And 
that's just kind of a common sense uh, both question and assertion. So I would encourage people to just put their natural thinking hat on. You don't have to have expertise. And you look at the external trends, you ask some basic questions, and these things lead to, uh, to good, rich discussion. So let's say you identify that existential risk, but the cost of mitigation is really high. How do you as a board prioritize among the various risks, including existential ones, in terms of resource reallocation? Which ones you protect against? Ophelia? That's a great question. Once you've identified the big risks that matter, what do you do? What if it costs too much money? But the first thing is, is about these resiliency big bets. And there's two aspects when you think about a resiliency big bet. How can it help you during an incident to sort of hunker down, protect the organization, but also how do you retain the ability coming out of the crisis to continue to invest? Okay. So Celia and Nora, how do you approach these big bets around resilience with the boards that you work with? One of the types of companies I work with is life insurers and retirement um, product providers. And one of the things that you might um, know about them is when interest rates are very low, as they have been, um, it causes a real risk to their business model, right? Their uh, overall profitability is at risk, and really how they've managed historically can be a real problem, particularly if they offer products like annuities or things like that that depend on interest rate growth. So um, thinking about um, resiliency then in that uh, mindset is really a two, two things. How long can we weather the storm and do we think interest rates are ever going to change? And one of the companies I work with literally drew a line in the sand, like we will stay in this business until this point. And then at that point, we will change the products we're offering because we can no longer manage the risk of the interest rate environment staying low. This is um, the banker talking here, you know, risk appetite is something that is very important for people to define. And financial institutions have deep, deep, I mean, they're in the risk business, obviously. And there's a lot of discussion around what is the risk appetite and hard lines drawn. I'm not sure outside of financial services that people spend enough time reflecting on how much risk can we afford and what are the scenarios that will, will take us past that. And to answer the question in terms of mediation, I mean, these are very sort of simple, obvious things, which are insurance. That may cost a lot of money, but it may be better than uh, having the business disappear. A lot of people in, in COVID drew down their credit lines immediately, even if they need, didn't need the money. Uh, and that's, again, a short-term measure, but, you know, corporate deposits in banks went way up. You know, I'm on an arts board, and the only reason it survived COVID was it, because it had building insurance for the opera house that if government-mandated closure, they, the insurance kicked in, and that is how they survived through the pandemic. So understanding, for example, that shutdown risk is a major risk, and it's, it's going to destroy the business, it may be worth taking on the additional cost of insurance to cover. The other thing is around operating risk. So what, what is the cost if I have a chemical spill and I have to shut down my entire plant and the surrounding communities are polluted? Right, what is that risk? And then what, there's insurance to mitigate it, but there's also increased safety or equipment changes, um, process improvements that are, I think we shouldn't leave out of this. And those are uh, 
can be expensive as well, particularly if you have to change out some plant uh, and property equipment. But at the same time, we shouldn't leave that off. So, you know, if you think about earthquake risk and earthquake mitigation, a lot of times the insurance is too expensive to manage the business. And so then you step back and you start thinking about what are the operational changes I can make so that I can withstand a, you know, maybe it's a 5.0 or 6.0 earthquake, but maybe I don't prepare for an 8.0. It also may make poor strategic choices to a certain extent. You know, on one of my uh, one of my nonprofit boards that relies on public funding, their infrastructure is old, and their capital plan, in order to stay in business, re requires major rebuilds. But the reality is, if you look at the size of those rebuilds required, um, th they can't possibly afford that over the next ten years. The board had asked for a ten-year capital plan and a roadmap, and that has forced. Uh, a series of questions that, of course, in the private sector, you'd say, well, you can't do all of those things, and so how are you going to prioritize? As a public sector organization that relies on government funding, to a certain extent, you always think the government is going to fund that because it's necessary. And as a board, you can, you can challenge that assumption, but I think it's making, making choices also. I'm wondering, are there any lower cost steps that organizations can also take to protect against these big risks? Ophelia? So one thing is about capturing leading indicators. So in Celia's example of the insurance, they put in a line and they knew. But as you were thinking about that, how do you know that you're going into an area where the trend could be towards a way that is not favorable for your operating model or your strategic plan? And how can you put those leading indicators in there? So you might not take an action today, but once you're closer and you realize that it's actually going that way, you, have a, you can take an action and the cost benefit changes. Another thing to think about that's also low cost but really important for the board is trigger-based actions. So thinking about upfront, what would you do? So taking the example of ransomware, do you pay it or not? Having a decision tree of how, when, what factors would lead you to pay versus what factors would lead you to not allows you to take an immediate action because you've already pre-thought through and not in the middle of the crisis. So those are both mitigation actions that you can help take that are not necessarily costly in the minute. And so I think all of these examples are, there are some things that you do do that might have capital costs, but there's a lot of procedural operational activities that really allow you to increase your resiliency without necessarily significant capital outflows. So we all have human biases in our decision-making and our assessments of risk. The optimism bias is one, for example where we just don't think the worst is likely to happen. How do you mitigate against these natural biases within a board? You know, if you take a trend and you push it to the limit, or you take a driver of performance in your organization, you push it to the limit, um, then you have to ex examine what would it take for that limit to be realized and what are the implications for my business. But I will admit I don't know a board that has spent time challenging itself uh, with a limit analysis. I think on the recency bias, just to build off of that, you can literally put some things off the table. Okay, we're not going to talk about COVID anymore, right? We're just push ourselves to identify the other risks that we see are going on in the business. And I think one of the interesting tools that you can use to take a more holistic view is either to think about the value chain. So 
from what you produce all the way to the customer and every step along the way. Um, and to think about the inputs, so the very basic inputs, like we have labor, we have capital, we have materials, and just try to open the aperture that way to reduce biases in the decision making. One thing we have seen that's really helpful with boards is scenario planning. It's multiple stories that help open up your imagination. As we talked about in like pre-morning, but you can use those to create a story. And the important thing is you need to have an you need to have an even number. Why an even number? Because you don't end up in the middle. You really want to be able to have that broader story and force yourselves to imagine what would the scenario, what would it look like for our organization if we were in those four, six worlds, not the three and ending up in the middle. That's an excellent point, Ophelia. And I think uh, boards who do this well that I've seen force themselves not to just think about what could happen, should happen, is likely to happen, but they also purposely pick one of the outlier scenarios to go deep on so that they can push their thinking. Thanks. So who do boards typically rely on to help them understand core industry-related risks? Nora, do your boards typically go to people within the organization or to external experts? There's certainly value, and I've seen it often in board dinners, uh, where you have an expert come in to talk about a situation, geopolitical risk in Latin America. I have a couple of boards where there's significant Latin American operations. You know, to prompt the thinking and, 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 and have the external context. I think then internally there's a question around just debate and scenario planning where I think you can prompt each other but I certainly also see folks that, separate from the trends, understanding the roles of the board and doing the scenario planning where if there is a crisis, have you got the experts on retainer, be it for forensic analysis, be it for communications, PR, the legal, knowing who to call regular, from a regulatory standpoint, those, those kinds of things. And I have you one board, for example, that every two years they bring in a big New York law firm and an investment bank. And they do two things. They remind the board of our duties, which we should all have forefront in our minds, but sometimes it's helpful to have that reminder and to reflect on what are the trends around corporate governance and where are the areas of risk. And secondly, the investment bankers come in with a, um, a lens from an activist standpoint and say, where is the structure of how we behave or our strategy or our financial structure uh, vulnerable from a... Um, uh, from an activist standpoint. And that stimulates debate around, well, what would our defense be on those if we uh, are steadfast in our point of view on a particular topic? Or secondly, some reflection saying, should we respond to that and should we change something? Yeah. Uh, so I do think experts play a big role, but it's in the stimulation of discussion at the board level. I totally agree. The other thing is every company is organized a little bit differently. You might have a chief risk officer. They might report to the CFO, they might report to the CEO, you might have a chief strategy officer. And what I think is most important is that the management team designates someone that is at least 
working across the management team to pull this together in preparation for the board discussion because you know it does need some structuring you can't just walk in and say today we're going to talk about risks and uh and no one's done any pre-work or pre-reading some of my most effective boards that i work with do bring in outside speakers as nora described and in particular um, outside speakers that they know that have positions that are antithesis to some of their business model decisions and so they will uh, bring those folks in for a contrarian point of view, and I think the board finds that very helpful um, because it's different than what they hear from management. There's a basic good board discipline, which is, one, making sure you have an external lens, and you are tapping into those contrary points of view. I'm not saying it's, it's common for boards to rely entirely on management, but you don't want to get, have inertia and, 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 you know, that stimulation of making sure you have that external lens and the contrarian point of view should be going on with, with regular frequency. In preparing for one of these board meetings, the discussion often with management is, how are we going to control the conversation? How will we control the board? This might get out of hand with so many external viewpoints. And so I, I would also just say to folks who are listening that are part of management teams, you know, I think the boards increasingly are getting more sophisticated about trying to add value as thought partners on these types of risk issues. And so, um, and it's part of their responsibility, their fiduciary responsibility. And so um, thinking about having a little bit of open time uh, where it's not totally scripted can be a really important process change uh, to have this come out in, in a really productive discussion. So let's say you've taken this approach um, and you've identified some of the existential risks. It, it's, it's great to be able to take preventative measures, but sometimes cr a crisis might hit and you also need, as a board, to be ready to react quickly. How do you organize for that? Ophelia? When you're assessing which risks you should be paying attention to, which ones should you be focused on, that's the time to have the messiness, the imagination, the, the conversation. You want to think about how you operate differently because in a crisis, the needs of the organization have shifted. So in terms of information sharing, what information would the board expect and need to make decisions? What level um, of uncertainty they can operate under because you are going to have to make decisions very quickly? What is the decision? How is the operating cadence of the board coming together? As you think about existential risks, there's both the identification and mitigation but also the response. And each of them require a little bit of a different operating model between leadership and the board. When I see boards that do well in this, they, they release their normal agenda. So they meet more frequently. They require less preparation for management. Not no preparation, but less instead of having the full set of analysis of a particular issue. They'll want to actually meet more rapidly, and so, you know, therefore, there's not a lot of prep time for management. And management is running the business and dealing with the crisis. And so, there's a fine line between asking for more analysis as a board member versus really trying to get in there and help with the thought partnership on the decision making in a quick way. Yeah, certainly, my experience, you know, and I think all our experiences over the last 18 months have been, you know, all of a sudden, no preparation and verbal updates and frequent phone calls, as much to be supportive of management and informed so that, you know, when a decision needs to be taken, you don't have to bring people up to speed. 
is a big part of effective, non-interfering, non but, but informed support that the board can provide. So in your view, Nora, should boards establish dedicated committees to assessing and dealing with extraordinary risks, or should this be something shared by everyone on the board? I think in a real crisis, often, uh, at least in my experience, there is value to creating a special operating committee. That was less the case, at least in my experience, during the pandemic. But I had a situation where there was some concern around a, an, an executive special committee, immediately experts retained, summons uh, the chair, and they can report back to the board. And it's that kind of, you know, broad discipline. And, and I, I hate to say it, that goes back to just making sure that your board has the diversity of experience uh, and diversity of perspective that you can rally a, an effective special committee and that the board has folks on it that have been through a crisis before, so they actually know what to do. Thank you. So after a crisis like the one that we just experienced, how can a board make sure that the organization is better prepared for the next one? One of the key things is a doing post-mortem and the kinds of questions you ask. We have a moment in time right now that we all have experienced at least one, if not more, major crises, potentially existential, towards our organization over the last 18 months. And how can you think about those questions? But it's around the skills, the training your board should be thinking about, the agile decision-making, the right operating cadence, as well as the board plan. One of the things in both post-mortem and pre-mortem that might be easiest to visualize in terms of skills and training is reactions to ransomware and cybersecurity risks. So many boards, in fact, have outside advisors that come in to run a role play where the board has actually jettisoned into the crisis and how would they make their decisions? What are the guiding principles? What types of things would they think about? And would they be willing to pay or not pay uh, the ransomware? So I think there are a set of uh, interesting trainings that are going on right now for boards that could be extended to other types of risks. So not just cyber, but could we role play other risks, a supply chain disruption, um, just so that we can start to accelerate our decision making. We've had that experience as a group and we know how we're gonna react to it um, in the moment. Then that way, we can make those decisions much more quickly without a full set of facts because we've already thought through the different scenarios. Certainly I have on cyber been uh, experienced at least two simulation trainings. And it's easy to, if you haven't done one of those, to dismiss, oh, well, you know, there's procedures and protocol and, and, and you don't need that. But, for example, one of my big learnings is it's very easy to, be emotional and say, I'm not going to pay a ransom. Uh, that's a bad thing to do. It fuels the industry. I've also been challenged on that to say it's a, uh, have someone say it's a business decision. It can't be an emotional decision. And if you're going to have your whole organization shut down for X amount of time, your obligations to your stakeholders, be it your customers, uh, your employees, uh, your shareholders, you know, what is the business cost of doing that? And do you need to think differently about it? And that may vary from, you know, my European colleagues feel very differently than some of my, uh, my American colleagues. So, so you, have to t you have to have those discussions beforehand because otherwise you risk being bogged down in a bunch of debate.
the other thing that comes up in terms of what I'm experiencing in a lot of boards in the postmortem from COVID is that some directors are reflecting around whether they still want to be directors and whether, just like the nurses are retiring, I've seen some directors retire. I'm leading a, an effort at uh, a, a couple of places where there's also a rethink of what is the right mix of experience and capabilities now that we've been past this and we want to relaunch growth and the world is very different in terms of board composition. So I think postmortems can also lead to huge opportunities that sort of say, you know, do we need to refresh, restart, rebuild, and how do we seize the moment at a board level as well as a management level? You know, that includes not just training, but also organization and composition. Yeah. And as you start to talk about those softer things, I'd love to just bring up culture. So one of the companies I work with in a postmortem, not about COVID, but actually about a different crisis, realized that the culture, they had a bit of a hero culture. So no one raised risks as they were happening, um, but rather would dive in once the crisis has happened and, and work like crazy. Uh, and the organization really uh, rewarded that. And you know those folks really were heroes. But the question was, well, that the board was asking, could you go back and sort of talk about our risk culture? And Ophelia, you mentioned psychological safety a bit in your article, right? What happens uh, in the early days of the crisis, or if I'm monitoring some trends, why are those signals not getting up to management to adjust? And what do we need to change in terms of culture to make that happen? And I think that's, a, in addition to some of the biases, Sean, I think that's a very interesting question of, do I have the culture to respond quickly and correctly? I've seen that, again, in a recent board discussion responding to an employee engagement survey, where there were some sites that felt much better supported and more capable during the crisis than others. There's opportunity. A lot of my boards and, and management teams have stepped back and said, you know, wow, it's amazing how much we got done. <laughs> and we changed our operating model and we pushed down accountability and decision making could take place. How do you bottle that and keep that? going forward so that, you know, the bureaucracy and the, uh, the slowness that, uh, that has crept in can, can be eradicated for good. That's, that, that, that is a great opportunity. Okay, this is the last question. As a board member, how do you convince your fellow board members and management that investments in resilience are worthwhile for these low probability but high impact events? Nora, could you take this first? I would divide it into two elements. There's a bunch of decisions that you need to take just to be prepared, not for a specific crisis, but for crisis in general, right? And it's the agility of the organization that, you know, the incident teams that are, may step up for one kind of crisis can still adapt and be sufficient for the other. So my sense is that there's baseline investment rather than specifically against a particular Grace One event that you can prepare for. And then I think, Secondly, some of these investments you're going to have to make because they're long-term trends, and a board is long-term in its lens. You know, we always get the timing wrong, but often you can predict the trends. So those investments, if they are unaffordable, then the question is, you know, how does, how does your fundamental business need to uh, change to address those trends, digital disruption being one? How do you reallocate your capital so that you can afford the investments that you need to make? Those are, those are long-term strategic decisions that ultimately 
will bear fruit against some of these gray swans. I'm not trying to minimize the gray swans point. And then on top of that, maybe there's some specific things that you need to deal with. But I think a lot of this, you could argue, is, is, is good risk management, good strategic investment for the long-term health uh, of a company if you're aware of those external trends. Right. And I, I just maybe add a different angle to that question, which is, you know, fundamentally it's about alignment. One of the reasons that we keep talking about scenarios and training is that, you know, the board is a group of people like any other. They're going to have their own individual viewpoints about what is a necessary investment and what's not. And so having that debate and discussion around a certain set of facts and particularly the scenarios of what could play out it can go a long way into building the alignment and the buy-in that's needed before you make some of these big investments. Yeah, and that's alignment not just as a board, but alignment with management. Right? With management, and absolutely. And trust and the relationship between the chair and the CEO, the board members themselves, and the board with management are all critical in this kind of situation. And just because you've identified some risks and today is not the day that you guys decide it makes sense to mitigate does not mean that it's been a failure. I think this is really important. It is about building that long-term culture by being able to identify those risks and being able to regularly think about them and ask the questions, what should we do today? And it's a process. And it's not going to be a one-time, one-and-done thing. It's really a long-term cultural change to how the board thinks about risks and thinks about the resiliency around those risks. Nora, Celia, Ophelia, that was, that was a terrific conversation and really appreciate you taking the time today. As I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to read Ophelia's recent article, The Disaster You Could Have Stopped, Preparing for Extraordinary Risks, you'll find a link to it in the show notes. You can also find other episodes in the Board Perspective series on your podcast player and on the Inside the Strategy Room page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, or you can follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy, or connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.